If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 213 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Dr. Patty Shank. Patty is a designer, analyst, and facilitator, and the author of Write and Organize for Deeper Learning, Practice and Feedback for Deeper Learning, and Manage Memory for Deeper Learning. Salisa, what do you and Patty talk about? Well, these days, Patty is focusing on easily applicable evidence-based tactics to get better outcomes from educational offerings. So I think of what she's doing as translation work. She's putting in the time and the effort to read the academic studies and then parlay them into approaches and tactics that learning businesses can use in the products they design and develop. So she and I talk about deeper learning, which, by the way, doesn't mean AI and machine learning or doesn't mean only those things in her definition. And we also dig into feedback, practice, working memory and cognitive load, and writing good multiple choice questions. Well, I love Patty's focus on applicability and uh, evidence-based approaches. That's very much in keeping with our focus here on the Leading Learning Podcast. Now, what reflection questions do you have to accompany this episode? Well, at first, think about the feedback and practice opportunities that you offer your learners. Are you devoting the same time and energy to those aspects of learning as you are to the content when you develop educational offerings? And then second, is the feedback you're giving your learners appropriate? Are you taking into account the learner's proficiency and the context in which the learning is happening? Those are the two questions that I I settled on in the end, but I found this an incredibly rich conversation. So I know that listeners may well come up with their own questions different questions that they want to reflect on after hearing Patty. Well, let's let folks get on to doing just that and roll the conversation with Patty Shank. Hello, and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele, and today my partner in conversation is Dr. Patty Shank. Patty is a designer, analyst, and facilitator with deep experience applying research-driven tactics from training, cognition, educational psychology, information design, usability, and other fields to create effective instruction. She's also the author of the three books in the Deeper Learning series, Write and Organize for Deeper Learning, Practice and Feedback for Deeper Learning, and Manage Memory for Deeper Learning. Patty, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Felicia, thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I very briefly touched on your background there. What else would you like listeners to know about you and your work as sort of a, a framework for the conversation that we're going to have? I, I think the most important thing to know is what I'm doing right now. Um, most of what I'm doing is writing articles on easily applicable evidence-based tactics to get better outcomes from training and instruction. And I'm also teaching online courses for people in the workplace learning practitioner audience um, to help them apply what, what the research says, because you can read about it. I have lots of books, but a lot of people have very specific questions about their own situations. So that's, that's the basis of what I'm doing most of right now. 
Well, great. I think that's a wonderful added um, background to know just your emphasis really on that practical, on the tactical. Um, now, the three books that I mentioned at the outset all include deeper learning in the title. And so I think a great place to start would just be to ask you, what do you mean by deeper learning? How do you define deeper learning? That's a really good question. And it gets confused sometimes because when you're talking about um, AI or machine learning, that's a specific specific subset. Um, and I'm not talking about that, although they're related. And um, so what I'm talking about is the research which describes a continuum of learning approaches and learning outcomes from shallow to deep based on the intent of the learning and the strategies that are used. So I'll give you an example. Um, shallow learning tends to be uh, learning disconnected facts and concepts, such as terminology, locations, um, the meaning of certain concepts, but it doesn't go very far. It's needed. And a lot of people think when I say shallow that what, I, what I'm doing is, is making fun of shallow learning. Shallow learning is where we start in many cases. So I'll give you an example, like when we were teaching medical terminology, and I have a healthcare background, and um, so that's one of the reasons I use a lot of me medical examples. So in me medical terminology, the first thing you're learning is the roots and suffixes, um, generally in Latin, of medical words. And when you first learn them, you're learning them at a shallow level just to be able to spit them back and to remember them. Um, but, but deeper learning, and uh, consider this as a continuum, if you will, from shallow to deep. There's not shallow and deep. There's shallow to deep. Mm. And, and deep is where, where you're using all the things you've taught them, the facts, the terminology, the concepts, putting the pieces together and helping people make sense and understand how it applies to what they are learning. So deeper learning is teaching for application. Mm. So and, again, yeah, I'm saying we have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that emphasis again on, on, you know, practicality that runs through, through your work then, um, and, and that focus on how can we make sure that the learners get to that point of being able to apply. Right. And, and we have to, we absolutely have to, and a lot of times we just don't. It's different strategies for, for shallow versus deep. Well, I think that's really interesting, and I know I want to talk a, a little bit about um, some of those, those strategies um, for shallow versus deep, and, um, and maybe we'll just jump there now because I think perhaps, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that you know, maybe one of those differences is the, the point around providing um, the opportunity for practice and offering feedback to learners, which I, to my mind would be very uh, much in keeping with the, the, the deep end of the spectrum, that that's going to help everyone be able to apply what they're, they're learning. And, and so I think most of our listeners are going to agree that those things are important, that, that opportunity for practice and offering feedback. But you know, I think we all know, too, that not all practice and not all feedback are equal. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on what do you typically see as, as issues um, with feedback in practice in educational offerings? 
Before we hear Patty's answer, we want to pause to thank our sponsor for this quarter. Community Brands provides a suite of cloud-based software for organizations to engage and grow relationships with the individuals they serve, including association management software, learning management software, job board software, and event management software. Community Brands' award-winning Crowd Wisdom Learning Platform is among the world's best LMSs for corporate extended enterprise and is a leading LMS for association-driven professional education programs. Award-winning Freestone, Community Brands' live event learning platform, is a leading platform for live learning event capture, webinars, webcasts, and on-demand streaming. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash communitybrands. And now, back to the conversation as Patty shares typical issues she sees with feedback and practice in educational offerings. It's a good question. Um, as kind of context, it takes a, a long time for people to become productive at workplace skills. Um, and, and that starts with shallow. And that, for example, if you're teaching someone someone to ring up a sale on a cash register or a point of service, um, then you're going to start with what all the buttons mean, what, what the things that you're touching and tapping on the screen mean. That's more shallow, right? But over time, as, as you have them practice, and generally if you're in the retail environment, you're practice, practicing by doing, um, so you're ringing up sales and, and you're, you're working with someone beside you. Um, it takes a long time for people to become productive at core work tasks. When you add non-core, things that are outside the norm, it takes even longer. And here's the problem. Before someone's productive, they cause problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you're working in a retail environment, Someone who doesn't know how to use the cash register is probably ringing things up wrong, is probably making errors, maybe making errors on, on pricing, which costs, costs money and time, or maybe taking so long to do their work tasks that things are getting backed up. And so our, our role in L&D is to create a path to proficiency. Um, Steve Rosenbaum and Jim Williams, who wrote the book Learning Paths, discussed this notion of creating faster paths to needed proficiency. Um, and that's what deep learning is about. Proficiency is about application, but application with accuracy, application with speed. Um, we spend far too much time on just throwing content at people. Um, and, and actually making, making it harder for them to learn, uh, making, making memory uh, just be challenged by, by what they're trying to learn. And so practice is one of those essential and deep elements that is needed for proficiency. And how many courses have you seen where it's 99% content and 5% practice, and the practice isn't realistic. Or it's the practice to go do it at home or back, back at your desk as opposed right. to actually in the context. Right. There's, no, there's little context, and um, we, don't, we worry about developing content for people. We don't worry as much about developing adequate 
an accurate practice at, at the level of proficiency they're at so that we can move them up from, from non-proficient to partially proficient to adequately proficient. Here, here's what I'd say. We, we are required by our job titles and our mission and what businesses need to actually deliver some level of proficiency and practice is needed. So um, the two biggest ahas here are that we deliver far too, level, too little practice for any level of proficiency. In fact, no proficiency. Um, and we generally deliver the wrong types of feedback um, to help people become more proficient. And so uh, we, we actually create problems for, for proficiency rather than creating proficiency when we do this wrong. One of the things people say to me on a regular basis is, this is all academic stuff. It's not, it's not applicable. And that's simply not so. The, the actual research may be academic, and it may be hard to understand, but that's why I'm doing the things I'm doing, because this is how we get people to where they need to go faster and with better results. And so it sounds like in the case of practice, then um, too often um, the mistake you see is that there's too little of it, or even when it does exist, that it's perhaps not um, properly suited for the learner and where she is um, right, along exactly. her path. It's and, generally too generic, and, and it's not in the context of work. Um, we have to teach and have people practice in the context of work. That's how, um, so, so one, one of the questions people have is about memory. If we don't teach it in the right, in the right context, it's hard to remember or impossible. Well, and, and memory is, I know, something that you've um, uh, written about, and obviously that's the focus of, of one uh, of your your books, um, and I know that you've asserted that that one of the largest constraints that learning designers and developers don't even realize that they have when working with instruction is the nature of our memories. So yeah. could you unpack that statement a, a little bit and, and tell us a little bit more about kind of how memory is a constraint for learning designers and, and then maybe what they should be doing given that constraint? Yeah, that's a good question. So Memory is what John Sweller, one of the leading researchers in this field, calls human cognitive architecture. And our human cognitive architecture is, is how we think, how we problem solve, how we learn. It's all, it all goes through memory structures. And um, it has, our memory has different parts, and each part has attributes and limitations. And the major aha here is that we have to work within the constraints and attributes uh, of our memory uh, parts. If we don't, we make it harder to learn, not easier. So, for example, I'll just talk about, let's say, two, two of them, two of the biggest ones. And one is working memory. And working memory is the part of memory which does processing of new information. 
The most important thing to know about working memory is it has extraordinarily limited capacity. And so that's how come we get overwhelmed so easily when people are going on and on and using fire hose training methods. Um, we simply can't learn that. We can't learn that way. It's not that, that our brain doesn't prefer to learn that way. We simply cannot. So, so we have to design all instruction according to the attributes and limitations of working memory. Um, and that has huge implications. One of them is, is known as cognitive load. It's the major implication. And we have to design with cognitive load in mind what overloads us and how do we prevent that. Um, and so the other one is long-term memory. And long-term memory is what's called in the research prior knowledge. It's what you already know and how it's organized in, in your brain, um, in your mind. Um, and so we have to design so we don't overload working memory. And then we have to develop accurate and adequate organizational structures of our long-term memory so that we can use what we know to learn and apply. And so that's our job. We, ha we must do these things or we are actually becoming a bottleneck in people's learning. And that's just a terrible thing for L&D professionals to, to be. Well, so uh, everything that you've uh, pointed out around those constraints of memory that we have to pay attention to, um, the, the, the fact that we tend to overlook um, opportunities for practice or uh, don't properly construct them so that they really suit the learner and, and the, the, the need that's being taught to. Um, but one of the things I'm thinking about, too, is that... Um, sometimes there ends up being kind of a trade-off between um, efficiency and effectiveness. And I know you've, you've written about this before that, you know, if, if some of the, the approaches you're talking about do make for more effective um, outcomes, you know, better uh, um, educational results, but, but often maybe get short shrift because people either believe or because they are um, less efficient, that they take more time. That, that's, that's a fabulous insight. And it's true. Uh, one of the things I regularly say is it doesn't matter if it's efficient, if it's not effective. So we have to look for the sweet spots, right? Um, and being effective doesn't mean it has to take longer. In, in fact, one of, the, one of the ways that we can be both efficient and effective is by giving people the broad foundational knowledge they need to keep learning on their own. Mm. Um, and so that's one, of the, that's one of the strategies that we must take with people who are brand new to a, a given topic or a given set of knowledge and skills is to figure out what is it that they have to understand that will make it easier for them to learn on their own on the job because we're not going to teach anyone everything. We just aren't. Mm. You know, it's not even possible to teach people everything. So with people who are brand new, what, is, what are the foundational concepts, terminology, facts, um, 
And then how do we use those for foundational skills um, so that they can keep learning on their own? Um, and, and we have um, Miriam Nealon and I regularly on, on Twitter have arguments with other people about, they call this, this rote knowledge. It's not rote knowledge. It's, it's the foundations. Um, f- for instance, there's foundational knowledge for ringing up sales, right? You know, what is the process? What are you actually doing? What is the terminology like? What is, what, there's a whole slew of terminology in, in any given knowledge and skills that you need to know so that when people are telling you how to do X or Y, you know what those terms mean. Um, so, so like in medical terminology, <clears throat> excuse me, roots and suffixes, um, those are, wor- th- those are the foundations of medical terminology. And so there's, there's ones that come up over and over and over again. And it's, it's a, an analysis piece of teaching people new skills. Um, so, so we can't, te- I mean, the key, some keys here. One, we can't teach people everything. We, we are not going to. And we know that, let's say we take, take six weeks to teach people how to answer customer service calls. At the end of those six weeks, if we don't follow certain well-known processes, they will have forgotten most of what they've learned at the beginning of those six weeks. And they'll struggle with what they learned in the last part of the six weeks because they don't remember the first six weeks. Mm. So so there are better ways to do that. Um, And there tend to be... Six weeks is a long time to have people off the job. Um, There are better ways to do this. And they give people what they know so that they can become minimally proficient, let them start working on some of the things, and then bring them back. You know, there's, there's ways to do this that work. And they're not academic. It's just that academics are the ones who have studied this. You know, and it doesn't have to be academic. I mean, if you read my books, I'm rarely academic about it. Well, and and so I think all of this is is great and it makes a lot of sense, especially this idea of, you know, really what can you do to equip um, your learners to be able to continue learning on their own. I think that's a fabulous insight. Um, I do want to circle back because we touched on um, feedback briefly, and you sort of said kind of the takeaway there is that often the wrong feedback gets given. Right. And, and I would just love for you to expand a little bit on kind of, you know, what that means. What is the type of feedback that typically gets given versus what would be more ideal or more helpful in terms of learning? This is a fabulously complex and, and to me, incredibly interesting set of issues. And so feedback is very nuanced. So I'm going to I'm going to talk about people who don't know a whole lot because we tend to give more feedback to people who have less prior knowledge, right? And so here's here's what some of the research says, and I find this just fascinating. Um, so they talk about three types of feedback, especially 
with electronic feedback as opposed to one-on-one feedback. So I'm going to limit it to people who know less, less prior knowledge, and giving feedback in electronic format. And they talk about three types. They talk about KR, KCR, and elaborative. And KR is knowledge of results. And so it just says whether you got the answer right or wrong. So you answer a question, let's say a multiple choice question, you got it wrong, and it says, sorry, you got the question wrong, you got the answer wrong. Um, and then there's KCR, which is knowledge of correct result, which tells whether, not only whether you got it right or wrong, but tells you what the correct answer is. And then elaborative feedback, which tells you why. Um, it, it, there's a, a, a whole host of things that can go into elaborative feedback, like um, why you got it right, why you got it wrong, um, where, where it was in the materials you studied. Um, so if you got it wrong, uh, you got it wrong, here's the right answer, and here's where we covered this, and you may want to revisit that. Um, and here's what the research says, and again, this is really nuanced, so this doesn't apply to every situation that the best feedback for most people is knowledge of correct answer. That knowledge uh, knowledge of results, where you just know whether you got it right or wrong, is not helpful. Um, So correct or incorrect, um, which you see all the time, um, not so helpful. You You might put those two together. Your answer was correct and here's, and here's why. Um, and for an incorrect answer, it would be your answer was correct, was incorrect. Here's the correct answer, and here's why the correct answer is correct. And here's what here's what the research says for people who are brand new: they can't handle a lot of elaborative feedback. Uh, they, just, they just it just it's overwhelm. Right, it's over. It's cognitive load, um, and that that. In many cases, the best thing to do is your answer was incorrect. Here's the correct answer. And this is interesting too. Show it in, show it in the guise of how it was shown in the question. So they, they can look at all three or four responses. Here's the one that was correct. Here's yours. It was incorrect. Here's the answer that was correct. Um, and so this has a lot of implications for for your what you're going to choose as a multiple choice system because you want it to provide here here's your answer here it was incorrect here's the correct answer it was correct here's the other answers you didn't chose they were also incorrect mm-hmm. that's already a, just a ton of information. Mm-hmm. And then you might, you might at that point just put a link and said, if you'd like to, to review this, um, click here to go back, back to this information. Huh. Isn't so, that, fa- is that not fascinating? It is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then too, just as you said in, in introducing this, that you were going to focus on kind of the uh, learners who, who know less about the subject and you were going to focus, focus on, you know, electronic feedback, which, already tells us just then how much more nuanced, right? As the learner Absol- becomes oh more God, advanced. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the answers are completely different mm. for more advanced learners. It's, they start talking about giving hints, let, letting people figure it out for themselves. 
um, those sorts of things. But if you do that with people who are who are less have less prior knowledge, they are instantaneously placed into an overload situation. Mm. Yes, absolutely fascinating. And and you've already begun to to get into this a little bit, but one of the other areas I wanted to touch on with you is multiple choice question, because I know that's a a particular sort of flavor or subset of instructional writing, and that's where you've done some deep diving. And so I would just be curious to hear your um, view on kind of the major pros and cons of multiple choice questions. Well, this one's interesting, too, because I never intended to write courses on multiple choice questions. But since they're used so often, both as knowledge checks and as assessments, um, because, because I've given workshops on this, I knew that people simply couldn't do this well. So I decided, okay, fine. Um, I couldn't find other people teaching this. Um, so that kind of made me nervous. Um, either one of two things, either nobody wanted to learn this, <laughs> um, in which case I was going to spend four or five months building a course that no one would ever take, um, or um, or just people knew how incredibly difficult this was to teach and no one wanted to get into that. So the pros are, are fairly simple. Multiple choice questions are extremely efficient as an assessment method. Here's what that means and why it's important. If it's efficient and it's done well, it means that we can we can assess far more content in a shorter period of time. And that's a hugely important aha, that, that if we want to be efficient in assessment, and most of us do. Let's face it, people are off the job when they're doing assessments and when they're doing training. We want to do the best outcome we can with the most efficiency. Um, and you talked about that before. And it's it's how we have to design instruction. It has to be efficient and effective. Um, some things, there's no effective. I mean, for increasing effect, for increasing expertise over the long run, um, it starts getting less efficient. It's, but there are ways that make it work and other ways that don't work. So it's efficient. Multiple choice questions are efficient when written well, and they cover more content in less time. The cons are really huge. Um, research shows that most multiple choice questions are poorly written. Um, because it's easier to write poorly written questions than, oh, let's say, recall only mm-hmm. questions. Um, but but poorly written questions are tend to be invalid for the for the assessment purpose, which starts getting you into legal hassles. You cannot use assessments to make judgments about people's learning or proficiency unless the questions and the assessments are valid, so they have to be written well. Um, we ha- And here's the bottom line for me. People must be able to do this. Um, this is an essential and critical skill for anyone who designs instruction. Um, and so I just decided, maybe stupidly, that I was just going to jump in and, and start teaching people 
how to do this skill because they have to be able to do it. Um, and that's why I wrote the course. Here's the good news. I had the course is heavily hands-on. So I don't want a ton of people in any, any of these courses. I, I can handle somewhere between eight and 20 and 20 would be getting at the very large end. And it's, I've been, this last one I taught was three weeks long. And for those three weeks, those people owned me. Mm. Um, and so I did not do any other work. This was not like putting up an, uh, an asynchronous self-paced course and people could do whatever they wanted. I knew I had to help them. So that's what I did. Um, and all of them came out. I saw such huge improvements in their questions over the course of three weeks. So it's a good, I mean, multiple choice questions are fine. What's wrong with them is how they're written. Okay, so it's the, it's the application rather than the, uh, the, the actual, uh, an issue with the, the format in and of itself. And, right, um, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with the format. It's just like there's nothing wrong with PowerPoint. It's how you use it. It's, it's, it's a very tough skill, but it, in, my, in my mind, it's tough because they're hard to write well. And let's face it, no one's teaching people how to write instruction well, mm. not even at the master's level. Mm. Well, uh, I'm going to shift a little bit because um, I want to just ask a, a little bit about um, you know, your approach, b- because it is so much based on uh, the research, on the evidence that's out there. And I think that's wonderful in terms of making sure that, that we as learning providers, learning designers are, are doing the right things. But it can admittedly be slow. I mean, you know, it takes time to conduct a well-run, um, broad study. Um, it takes time to uh, write up uh, what happened in that study. It takes time to then get it um, uh, published in a, a peer-reviewed journal, all of that. So given that there's sort of this lag built into this ap- approach to, to research, I'm curious to know, you know, what question are you kind of eagerly uh, awaiting um, research on? You know, is there sort of something where you're like, oh, I just, I'm really looking for this study. I want someone to give me this, this answer or insight into this aspect. Yeah, that, that's, that gets us into something actually, I think, different than what, what you're asking. I've never not found answers mm, okay. when, I, when I've looked for them because research tends to not answer extremely specific questions. Like, like for example, on um, video, it doesn't answer the question of, is, is video good for learning? It answers questions like, what, the, what needs to happen in order for video to be useful? It answers a bunch of related questions. So a lot of times people will send me an email and say, what does the research say about, about how long a video should go? And up until recently, I didn't have an answer for that. Um, but, but when you're looking for research, you have to go up in scale and down in scale, um, and you have to know the words to use. So, um, so for example, the research on video 
And I wrote an article for eLearning Industry, which is probably one of the most read articles of mine ever on the question of is video good for learning? And I talked a little bit about how did I find the answer? And the answer was, was what I hit on, and, and this, is, this is the interesting part, is that when you're doing research reviews, you're not looking for one study, you're looking for a preponderance of studies on a specific topic. Um, and the topic was attention span during learning. Um, and so I, even if you look up video, you find a whole bunch of stuff, and you find things like, um, um, I don't know, it's not coming, you know, when, when I try to do this in the moment, I have a hard time, <laughs> I have a hard time, I'll come up with it like four seconds after we stop talking, but, um, but, but so, so where you, where you find, where you find, um, you're, like, you're not going to find engagement, and it's, you are going to find engagement, but you're going to find it in the higher ed literature, and they're talking about people's ability to stay uh, engaged with their course of study. Mm. Um, and, and the word attrition will come up. Um, mm. So when you're, when you're studying the research, the first thing to do is to learn how to study the research. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the major issues is keywords. What are the keywords that'll get you where you want? And if, if you don't find anything, how do you shift to additional keywords? So there are like uh, animations um, tend to this this is fascinating to me too. Animations tend to be a problematic method of teaching for people who are newer to to the topic because they introduce cognitive load elements that new people newer can, simply cannot handle. And, and that's true in PowerPoint as well. We do the same things in PowerPoint. Um, and, and so you're not going to answer the question, is, uh, is animation good? You're going to an answer the question, what are the problems with animation? And what are the benefits of animation? Um, and my friend Karen, Karen Hyder and I are working on her synchronous learning courses. And when I was just looking at synchronous learning, I didn't find tactics. I found synchronous learning is used for X, Y, and Z, right? And, and here's how it's being used in, in electrical engineering courses. And here's how it's being used to support um, discussions for uh, people who have learned how to be a psychologist. You know, and it's like I didn't find the tactics, but when you started looking up benefits and barriers and, and in various situations and with different types of learners, I mean, you really have to read, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 research articles to start getting the drift of what people are researching, and then you start getting the keywords of, of ways to look this up. Um, so when people read my books, I, this is a funny story. Someone read my book, my writing book, and wrote back to me and said, I think uh, mid-20s in dollars is too expensive for a 200-page book. 
<laughs> and it's like, and it's like, and I wrote back to to them saying, "So, do you have like some kind of algorithm for X, pe- X cents per page?" Um, and 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 he said, "No, but I I think it should have been three hundred pages or four hundred pages for that." And and, here, <laughs> and here's what I said. Here's what you don't know. In order to write those two hundred pages, I spent six months reading research, taking notes, um, writing up the notes so that I could make organize them into here are the issues and the tactics that support those issues. I said, that's what you paid for. You didn't pay for the 200 pages. Um, I could have write, written 300 pages, and maybe I will, because I, there are other issues I'd like to include in that book. But you paid for the six months of, of not being paid and doing nothing but reading and organizing. So, well, no, I think you definitely have a uh, you know developed uh, expertise in in this um, uh, approach to looking at research. How to ask uh, the question, which keywords to to use, um, as you're pointing out, and and so all of that makes tremendous sense to me. That and there's, I think, a lot of value, of course, in what you're doing around um, kind of boiling some of the research down and then coming out with these practical. Uh, implications and then approaches that learning designers can take. Well, thank you. I absolutely adore doing this. Um, I, I can't believe it took me this long to find like m- the thing I most needed to do in my work. <laughs> but 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 it's um, you know when you're starting with a new topic, like when I started with writing the writing book, I didn't even know what I'd find. It, you know, my first question was this. Is instructional writing different than writing nonfiction or writing um, stories? And the answer was, hell yes. <laughs> and, and here's why. And then that took me into, so that was the first question. And then it was like, what are the primary issues that instructional writers have to get right? And that's what the book's about. Now, I could have included 40 or 50 topics, but here's what I found. My goal when I started was to keep these books to around 200 pages, give or take um, 50 pages, so that someone could read it in an, in an afternoon. Mm. And then, and, and and so, I mean, if if you bought that writing book for me and it had 800 pages in it, <laughs> you'd probably never open it. Right. It's back to cognitive load and overwhelm and all right, that. exactly. It looks bad, so it is bad. So, so I just I decided that I was going to, you know, with the writing book, I probably came up with, I don't know, fifty to sixty things that I could have included. And because I've been an instructional designer for thirty plus years, like actually doing instructional design and doing um, instructional writing and writing. Um, patient education materials, which was my original background, um, that that um, I thought I had a pretty good idea of which of these 50 topics would be applicable to pretty much everyone. Hmm. Well, so I'm going to um, kind of take us uh, down the, the home stretch here and, and ask our, uh, our next to last question. It's a question we ask of all contributors on the Leading Learning Podcast, and it's one that focuses on your personal learning specifically, and it is, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? 
Well, the one that comes to mind is teaching the, the class I just taught. Um, there were 16 people in the class, and I thought it would be pretty much a transfer of what I know to them and them putting it into uh, applying it and writing their own questions and getting feedback and over time getting better. And that happened for sure. But what happened that I didn't expect and that floored me was their questions that weren't, that weren't included in the original materials. Um, and so their questions sent me on a research um, approach to answering those questions. Now, people ask some questions that I, I just wasn't going to answer in the class, like, uh, well, actually, I did anyway. Like, for instance, um, one of the people said, could I write multiple ch questions to help me figure out how to write good scenarios? Hmm. And, and I said, you know what? I, I think that has some merit. I'm going to play with that over the next two days, and then I'm going to tell you what I found, and we can start a discussion about it. And what I found is that if I wrote questions based on the method I was using with them, that I that the questions themselves told me a lot a lot about how to write the scenarios. Um, and so it actually did did some pre-thinking, some very deep processing and pre-thinking. But, but there were other questions people asked, and I was floored at how much, how, how deeply they thought and how well this helped me to go research the answer. Um, here's one that, that I thought I knew the answer to, and I was wrong. And, and the, answer, the question was, how many answer choices is optimal? Well... I didn't know why I thought this. I didn't remember any research on it, but everything I'd read about multiple choice questions had shown four or five answer choices. And the research shows, but I, so I went and looked and the research shows three is what's optimal. Hmm. And, and I'm not going to get into details because we're almost done, but, but, but it's beyond fascinating to me why three is better than four or five. <laughs> That is, um, it's a bit of a cliffhanger there, but the, yes, that's good. <laughs> we'll have to, to find, tune in and find out more about uh, why three is optimal. But right, that is so fascinating because again, right, we tend to see four or five um, almost all the time. Um, right, and, and three is actually, and, and a lot of research has shown, because remember I said you have to look for the preponderance of research because you can always find one or two or even 10 studies that show X, but is that the accepted answer for now? Right. Um, so that's, that's what you need to get to. All right. Well, final question is if, if listeners want to know more about you and your work or connect with you, where should they go? Um, the easiest, there's two places that are easiest to find me and find out information about what I'm writing. And it's pattyshank.com. And Patty is spelled with an I. If you put in Y, you won't get there. You'll probably get to someone else's site. <laughs> uh, so pattyshank.com and it has tons of information there. And then I do a whole bunch of, um, I'm, I'm indebted to e-learning industry because, because they have me write 
regularly on a research topic. And probably my most read articles are on e-learning industry. Just go to elearningindustry.com and search under my name and you'll get a whole list of all of my articles there. Wonderful. We'll make sure to include a, a link to the your website, pattyshank.com, in the show notes, as well as a link to um, your articles on e-learning industry. Patty, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Salisa. That concludes the conversation with Dr. Patty Shank. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 213. And the show notes will, as always, include our reflection questions for this episode. And those are, one, are you focusing on practice and feedback as much as content when you develop educational offerings? And two, is the feedback you're giving learners appropriate? When you check out the show notes, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, and if you're not already subscribed, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That'll put you in the right place. And Salisa and I personally appreciate your ratings and reviews. Um, but even more importantly, those ratings and reviews help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. We'd also be grateful if you would check out our sponsor for this quarter. Visit Community Brands by going to leadinglearning.com slash communitybrands. And finally, consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn at leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag hash leading learning on each of those channels. However you do it, please follow us and please help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.